Good morning. As Jill said, my name is Brandy Gilliam. Uh, before I get too far ahead, I thought I would properly introduce myself. Uh, you may have seen me running around uh, in the worship team or in another avenue in this church, uh, but I thought I would take this moment to say, this is me. This is who I am completely and totally, so you have no doubt of exactly who I am through and through. So, an interesting thing about me is I like Twitter. Anyone on Twitter? Some, some, a few? Okay, great. Uh, I really like it. You know, it's of the social media avenues, it's the one that I enjoy the most. You know, I, I like the intentionality of it all. I, I get to follow pastors and leaders and authors and Taylor Swift. I said it. I follow Taylor Swift. I'm, I'm not ashamed. You know, I'm not ashamed. She has 53.2 million followers, and I'm one of them. And I proud. You know, in my defense, though, when she writes lyrics, like, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling 22. It's like she's speaking to my soul, you know? I mean, she just gets me on a level that not many people do. And so Taylor Swift and I, we're tight. We're really tight. Um, but no, I, I like Twitter. And so I thought an interesting way to introduce myself today would be to introduce myself in under 140 characters or, or letters, right? So this is me in 140 characters or less. Here we go. I follow Jesus, hashtag disciple. I love my wife, Kelsey, hashtag marrying up. Coffee, period. Hashtag the best part of waking up is literally anything but Folgers in your cup, Rick. I mean, just <laughs> let's be real. Folgers is just not that good. It's just not that good. Uh, I read a lot. Hashtag nerd. Hashtag proud of it. Okay? So that's me and 140 characters or less. So now you completely understand me at my essence entirely. Just kidding. Uh, no, honestly, that probably took a lot more time than I should have put into it, but that's just how deep my love for Twitter really goes. Um, but truly, I'm just very honored to be here today. I'm honored to be serving this church at this pulpit in front of you, and I'm excited to see what God has to say to us today from the book of Romans. Um, so as I mentioned in my Twitter introduction, uh, I like to read, and that's true. I've been reading as much as I possibly could since I was around junior high age. Um, but it all began for me in a hole in the ground. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with ends of worms and oozy smell, nor a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. So if you don't know, that is the first line to the book The Hobbit, which is the beginning book of the saga of the Lord of the Rings. Yes, I like Twitter and I like Lord of the Rings. I'm, I'm just really stacking up nerd points today. I know. Um, but I have read that sentence more times than I can count. So many times that when I read it now, it feels like coming home, you know? Uh, I, my dad actually started reading me bedtime stories of the Lord of the Rings when I was a little kid. And so as soon as I was old enough, I was like, I've got to start reading Lord of the Rings. Uh, and so I, I, you know, got to these, because they're kind of intense books a little bit for like a little kid. So I got a little bit older, and I got, I got my hands on The Hobbit, the first book in Lord of the Rings. And I started reading, and I was like, oh my goodness, I am Bilbo. I met myself in The Hobbit. I was like, I am that, that hobbit who just wants to stay home and safe and away from adventure and danger, but not really put myself out there, but then finds myself in these scenarios where I'm thrown into things where I have to figure it out and figure out myself at the same time. It was just, I fell in love with the story. 
And then I went on to read stories of Frodo and Sam and the Ring and Gandalf and Aragon and, and all in Middle Earth. And just the list goes on and on. My, my imagination was filled to the absolute brim with these stories. My point is I loved Lord of the Rings. But we all know, and I've read the stories many, many times, but nothing really beats the first time. You know, that first moment where, you, where, you, where I met Bilbo for the first time and I said, Bilbo, we're the same person. Did you know that? talking to a book right now. Um, so I read through them the first time, and I came to the last book, The Return of the King, where Aragorn is going to sit on his white throne. He's going to make everything right in Middle Earth, and all things will just have peace and happiness and harmony, and things will just be right with the world. And so I pick it up, and I, and I grab it, and I remember grabbing it, and I was so excited. It was early in the morning, that 544-page book, and I sat down, and I read it in one day. I just tore through it. I couldn't, I couldn't stop reading it. I mean, I was not eating. I wasn't sleeping until I had finished Frodo's adventure. But then, once I finished, I had only one question in my mind. What do I do now? <laughs> I, I mean, I had lived in this story for so long I was like, what am I supposed to do now that Frodo's adventures is done? I was walking around for weeks muttering to myself, what now? What, what do I do? How do I eat? How do I drink? How do I sleep? How do I speak? How do I breathe? It's like I've lost an actual friend or something. Has that ever happened to you? Where you read a story, you find a story, you live a story, and after it's done, you're not quite sure what to do with yourself then. And you ask your question, what now? I think it's actually a really important question. It's a crucial question to ask because what we're really asking is now that I have had this transformative experience, what am I supposed to do with it? Now, I might be reading a little bit into my experience with Lord of the Rings, but you catch my drift here. Something happens to us in transformation. Something happens to us where we ask that question, what now? What do we do next? And this brings us to Part five of our journey through the Romans road, where we traditionally look at Romans 10, 9. If we could throw that up on the screen there. Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. This is a very well-known passage and foundational to Christian understanding of what it means to be saved. This verse has led countless Christians to the glorious gates of salvation. This verse is full of life. There's, there's no doubt about that. It's, it's absolutely essential to, to what we know to be true about following Jesus. But this sermon series that we're on is the Romans road, where we off-road from the traditional Romans road. We ask the question, are these verses important in and of themselves, or are they important because they're connected to a larger narrative in Paul's, uh, not gospel, in his, in his letter, Right? Uh, we're asking that question, what goes behind, what goes further than the Romans road? And today we're looking at salvation. So with that in mind, we, I got to be honest with you, we have a challenging road ahead of us today. Today's sign is this, which I'm actually not even sure what this means. I probably should go back to driver's ed or something. Um, but it's, it's to show you tension, right? It's to say something's going on here in the text that creates tension in us. Because Romans 10.9 is found directly in the middle of three of the most challenging and controversial chapters in maybe all of the Bible for Christians. This is Paul at his theological best in these chapters. 
and, and he's pulling no punches. And his arguments have been argued about among Christians pretty much ever since he put pen to paper. The reason these chapters are so controversial is because of the topic. It's about how God does salvation, how he interacts with humanity and rescues humanity. And there's a lot that goes into it. Paul uses words like predestination, like election, and foreknown, which have become huge buzzwords in the church. Just mentioning some of those words has probably perked your ears up with either preconceived ideas of support or defense. But what I want us to focus on today is exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans 9 through 11. Paul is explaining the mystery of God's salvation through Jesus Christ that is available to all who believe. And this is a mystery. It's not something that we have figured out. It's not something that is done and completed and stamped and and we have no questions about. There are questions here and we are learning more and more about salvation as we walk with Jesus. But it is mysterious. The way that God works at times is mysterious. But sure, there are things that we can know. We can know that Jesus was a real man, that he was God incarnate, that he walked on the earth, that, that he saved us from our sins, that he made us right before God. These are things that we can know, but to truly comprehend what they've done, that goes beyond our capability. Verses like Isaiah 55, 9 come to mind where, where God says to Israel, for, the, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. How far apart are the heavens from the earth? It's immeasurable, absolutely immeasurable. So God is saying there are, there are things that I do that won't quite make sense to you. But, this, that's a very large, strong but, He meets us there. He meets us in that moment, in the mystery. And he walks alongside us because we don't have it all figured out. There's a certain amount of humility that we must have when entering these passages because we don't have it all figured out. Now, let me pause and talk a little bit about anthropology. Okay, Anthropology, uh, there are two types of study. There are etic study and there is emic study. Edic study, researchers make their observations from the outside of culture. So they, they kind of take a large look at the whole of the culture. Emic researchers get up close to local customs, traditions, beliefs. They literally learn the language of the people and the culture that they are studying. Exactly. Our temptation, however, is to stay outside, to be edic rather than emic. Our temptation is to remain etic in our use of scripture, especially when it comes to difficult passages. When was the last time we read Revelation, for instance? I don't know. Me neither, Rick. But the difficult passages are still scripture, right? I mean, they're still God's word. So if that is true, then to be satisfied with general observations will only yield menial transformation. If we're only okay with staying outside and looking at the big picture and not getting into what the Bible has for us, even in difficult passages, we will only be satisfied with menial transformation. But Jesus offers complete and total transformation. Amen? Amen. So while what we are looking at today is challenging and controversial, I would be absolutely remiss if I didn't also say that they are some of the most life-giving and joyful chapters 
of Romans and possibly the entire Bible. In fact, Martin Luther claims that he found peace and salvation with God in Romans 9 through 10. These are chapters about our salvation after all. This is a good thing. They are about God looking at us, seeing us in brokenness, sincerely loving us, and providing a way to correct our sadness and turn our mourning into joy. There is so much within these chapters that should unify us. And that's what I want to focus on today. Today, I want our complete attention to be locked in on salvation, what God is doing, and what part God plays in our salvation, and what part we play in salvation. The main point, the point that I want you to remember as you leave today, the point that I've been praying that God would just impress on our hearts is this. God is the one who saves. We are the ones who are saved. And you might be reading that thinking, that's kind of simple, isn't it? It is simple, yeah. It, It is simple. Some of the best news in the Bible and the New Testament is simple news because it just is good news right? So what, we want, what, I, what I wanted to do today is I want to pull apart what Paul reveals about salvation in Romans 9. I want to look at what, what is Paul doing? Why, how is he explaining how God works in salvation? And then secondly, I want to look at us. What part do we play in salvation? How do we work in this salvation process? So that's where we're going today. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please open them to Romans 9. If you don't have a Bible with you or at home, we have some in the back for you. They are our gift to you. Please take as many as you want and take them home to your family. So Romans 9, chapters, uh, chapter 9, verse 15. For he says, and this is God speaking to Moses, Paul quoting, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So my first point in support of the idea that God saves, and we are the ones who are saved, is this. God initiates Mercy and compassion in salvation. God initiates mercy and compassion in salvation. So what we see here is Paul starting with a story. This would have been an incredibly familiar story to all of his Jewish followers, all, of his Jew- all the Jewish people in Rome. This would have been incredibly familiar to them and possibly familiar to some of you here today. And, and let me just pause for a moment and say something kind of interesting You'll probably see Paul, you will see Paul quoting the Old Testament a lot in these three chapters. And keep in mind, the Old Testament to Paul was his Bible. This was the Bible that he prayed over, the Bible that he memorized, the Bible that he heard sermons from, the Bible that he preached from. He's quoting it a lot here. In fact, 33% of all of Paul's Old Testament quotations exist in chapters 9 through 11. 33%. That's huge. It's a huge grouping of Old Testament quotations in such a small space. It is as if Paul understands that what he is dealing with in speaking of God's salvation is very sensitive. And so as to not rely on his own wisdom, he looks to the revelation of God's word, a lesson I think we could all learn and do well from today, especially myself. 
So Paul, jumping back to Romans, Paul makes reference to to the story of Moses inside the tent of meeting on on Mount Sinai where where Moses asked God to reveal his glory. So let's read that story and see what, what Paul is talking about here. In Exodus 33, starting in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, and in my translation, uh, that word Lord is capitalized because it's in reference to God's proper name, Yahweh, which will become important in just a moment. So, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, this is God speaking to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses responded to him, if your presence will not go with me, don't bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, is not... Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that I have spoken to you, I will do. For, I, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Let me give you a little context of what's happening here. This is Moses coming to God. This is not a a casual or polite conversation. This is not grandma praying for breakfast on Sunday. This This is an intense conversation between God and Moses. Moses comes to God and says, okay, God, you have chosen us. You, you, did, you did the thing with Abraham, and we, that's great. We want that. We want more of you in our lives. But we're not quite sure how to follow you yet. See, at this time in Israel's history, they were still trying to figure out who they were. They were trying to figure out what does it mean to be God's people? What does it mean to follow after God? And Moses is saying, God, show us your glory. Reveal yourself to us so that we know what to look at and be more like. And God says, I will go with you, and I will give you rest. And I will reveal my name to you, which is a, way, a Hebrew way of saying, I'll make myself known to you. I will show you who I am actually. And then right after this, God says to Moses, and pick up some tablets and we're going to make a law. And this is how you'll know to be my people. We're going to create a law and you will follow this law and that's how you will be my people. I will be your king. You will be my people if you follow this law. Right after this conversation. So God's response to Moses is that of a wise father to an impatient and zealous son. Here we see God making himself known to Israel and making a covenant with them that he will go with them, give them rest. But shortly after this, and this is, we need to catch this today. Shortly after this, God reminds Moses that it is not him, but God who determines the direction and application of mercy, of his mercy and compassion. Moses is coming before God, begging that God would make his ways known to his people so that they might, as Moses said, find favor in your sight. And immediately following this passage, God instructs Moses to take up two stone tablets and to write the law. So how does Paul use this? Paul uses this passage in Romans 
to reveal continuity in the person of God. By, by using this passage in particular, Paul is saying that the God of Israel, who has been their God from the beginning, has always had the first word in salvation. In other words, Paul is saying, remember, do you remember that thing with Moses a long time ago? Paul is saying, God is still acting that way. So what, what is Paul pulling out from, what Moses, from Moses' experience? He's pulling out the part where, where God says to Moses, I make the first move. I initiate my mercy. Right after God promises to reveal his name to Moses, right after God says, yes, I'm with you, I will give you rest, he says, but Moses, don't forget, I make the first move here. This is not a two-way street. You're the one who's drowning. I'm the one who's lending a hand. And Paul's saying, it has always been this way in salvation. It has always been the way of God to act first in salvation. We don't save ourselves. God saves us. And Paul's saying, yes, I agree with Moses. And I'm saying, yes, I agree with Paul. It's probably a good thing to say, pulpit, right? But Paul uses this to reveal continuity in the nature of God. His, God's mercy is everlasting and his compassion is never ending. Therefore, whomever God cho- chooses to bestow his mercy and compassion on is eternally blessed, which is a Hebrew way of saying saved. Paul is saying that when it comes to salvation, God has the first word. And we can see this in, in a different translation. Eugene Peterson's uh, translation of the, of the Bible is the message. And he writes Romans 9.18 like this. All we are saying is that God has the first word, initiating the action in which we play our part for good or ill. So now that we have established that, now that we see what Paul was doing with Exodus and with the story of Moses, establishing God as the one who does the saving, let's move to us. Let's transition to what Paul is doing with us in this story of salvation. So Romans 9, verse 19. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, I'm sure some of your ears are peaked up by reading that, because that's, that's not easy stuff. This is, this is etic Christianity right now. We are, we're getting into some serious stuff right now. But again, what I want to fix our attention on is what Paul is saying about salvation particularly. How, how are we involved in salvation? Right? So my second point is the importance of soft clay. That doesn't quite make sense yet, but hang with me, I'll explain. We see that at the end of this powerful teaching of God's salvation, Paul ends with a metaphor. This is very like Paul. He, he loved stories. He, him like Jesus knew that we learn sometimes best through stories, don't we? I mean, we, we learn difficult and complex ideas through stories. I never would have understood Middle Earth if I didn't understand Bilbo. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I related to Bilbo. But so we learn best through stories, and so that's what Paul is doing. But once again, he's not using a story of his own. He's quoting his Bible. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 29. 
So if we can go there, Isaiah 29, verse 15, reads like this. Ah, you who hide from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing that is molded say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. In this story... Israel has rejected God's counsel. And Isaiah is saying to them, you've got everything upside down. God is your counsel. He embodies it. Don't go the opposite way. Go toward him. Don't go away from him when you need counsel. What, are you, what you are doing is as crazy as clay critiquing its potter, which is a, is a very strong but also kind of funny image. I mean, if you're a potter and your clay starts screaming at you, we got a couple things to talk about. First, you might just want to throw the, throw the clay away. You got some bad clay. It's, it's out in the sun too long. Just throw it away. Get some new clay. Two, if your clay, if your clay is yelling at you, you might want to go visit this place. With they got these padded walls and these really tight jackets. There, it's really it's nice. The coffee's great there. The people are really nice. You'll love it. No, but it, it it's funny because it doesn't work that way. Clay doesn't critique the potter. It just doesn't happen. The, the reason this is funny is because it doesn't happen. Clay is supposed to yield to the hand of the potter. It's supposed to do that. Paul uses this same image, going back to Romans, to elicit a similar lesson, which is that God is in charge of salvation, and we are in charge of being saved. But what exactly does that mean? Both Paul and Isaiah are critiquing God's people, all of us. Paul and Isaiah are critiquing God's people, us, today, by saying that in order to be saved, you cannot tell God how to make a pot. Instead, Paul and Isaiah insist that the people of God must yield to the hand of the potter and work with him, work with him at, in new creation. I have a good friend who um, is an actual potter, and she always gets upset with pastors and teachers when they start talking about pottery, but they actually have no idea what they're talking about. So I knew I was going to be talking about pottery in the sermon, so I thus knew that I was obligated to talk to her, get her opinion. And I'm so glad that I did because she gave me this great story. Um, one day, her and her friend went to the studio to make some new creations. And they get there early, and they start setting up. And the first thing you do when you, when you start making anything in pottery is you get some clay and you center it on the wheel. This is the most important part of the project because if your clay isn't centered, it will never end up in a symmetrical piece. And now you could say, like, well, it's, you know, it's artistic. I totally meant to do that. But really, it's just a messed up pot that's not supposed to look that way. So you have to get it centered on the wheel. So her friend is starting the process. She puts the lump of clay down. She, she gets some water and lubricates the clay, and they start s slowly spinning. And her friend was having a really difficult time. The, the clay was, was old, and it was b being stubborn. It was, it was hard in some places, and it, it just wasn't centered right. She couldn't ever get it to the center. The clay was fighting the potter. And it wasn't until my friend stepped in and said, here, Gave her a new batch of clay that was soft and malleable. She was able to center it on the wheel and immediately start creating something new and beautiful. It wasn't until the dry and stubborn clay was replaced with soft, malleable clay 
that a new creation could take place. And this leads me to my final point, the point of this entire sermon. Now what? So what? How does this connect? Where does it come together? We're talking about God and how he establishes his, and he initiates salvation first. He, he lends a hand. We don't do that. We, don't, we are not saved in and of ourselves. We're the ones drowning, right? Secondly, something about clay. Like we're, we're clay that is supposed to be malleable or something like that. But how do they fit together? How does this idea of God saving and us being saved fit together? Friends, I'm here to tell you that they fit together in Jesus. They fit together perfectly in Jesus. You see, let's go back to Moses for a moment. Moses comes to God on Mount Sinai and says, God, yes, we want to be your people. Yes, we want to follow you. We are in on this, but we're not quite sure yet. We're not sure what to do or how to go or which way or what's next. We're asking perpetually, now what? And God says, I'm with you. I will give you rest. Let's make a law. We're going to make a law together and then follow this. Paul's saying, yes, Moses was right about a few things, but now God has done a new thing in Jesus so that we are not following a law now. We are following a person. We follow Jesus now. It transforms our transformation from following a list of rules to following a person. Over and over again, the narrative of the New Testament The new covenant is to put on the nature and character of Jesus. Once God justifies us, once we trade our hard clay hearts for a malleable spirit, we begin to daily allow God to make us into new creations that look more and more like Jesus every day. That's the now what of salvation today. That's the now what of salvation, how it fits together what Paul was talking about in Romans 9. That's the backbone of Romans 10, 9. After we confess, after we believe, we go forth and we follow a person, and that person is Jesus. What if, my question in closing is this, what if we allowed our whole beings to come under the guide of God's firm salvation? God is there, ready. He initiates salvation. What if we say, yes, I'm all in, grabbing the hand, and then I'm following the person, Jesus? What would happen What if we desired above anything else to allow God to daily conform our lives to look more like Jesus? What would happen in our families, in our jobs, in our schools, in this church if we really, truly said, yes, God initiates salvation. I want to be saved, and now I follow Jesus. To be honest with you, I don't quite know what would happen exactly. But perhaps our question would change. Perhaps it wouldn't, it wouldn't be, now what? Perhaps we wouldn't be muttering to ourselves, I'm not sure what to do, I'm not sure where to go, now what, how do I do this? But the question would transform into what's next? What do we do now? Jesus, what are you gonna do tomorrow? How are we working with you tomorrow to, to move further up and further into this salvation? How do I look more like Jesus than I did yesterday or, or a week ago or a month ago or a year ago? How am I continually saying, God is the one who saves and I am saved and now I'm following Jesus all the way? Perhaps our question would change from now what to what's next.
Pray with me. Father, we love you. Um, I, I pray that your word would go forth today, that, um, that your truth would penetrate the hearts of your people and that your people would praise you. God, I, I pray that, that we would be struck with the idea of transforming our hearts to be more like you, that we would become that malleable clay in your hand and you would make us into new creations that would sing your praise and, and live out your praise in the earth. Um, God, I, I pray just a huge blessing over this church, over these people, that you would guide them, that you would direct them, that you would draw them into yourself, and that you would make them new over and over again. So God, would you bless them and keep them in Christ's name. Amen. Before you go, I, I would like to encourage you, if you have anything that you would like to receive prayer for, we have a prayer team over here that would love to pray with you and pray over you. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to, to be in front of you and to share this moment with you today. It has been my absolute pleasure and honor. Uh, so, so may God be with you as you continue your week. Thanks.